Listener Production. Shares, Market. the S&P, the ISX stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. Yep, brand new year of recording, still very special, still a mailbag, and I'm still here with the man himself, the straw man himself. He is, of course, Andrew Page, Esquire. Mr. Page, how are you? I'm very good, sir. Good to be back. Good to be Thank you get up this early on a Sunday morning? Yes, well, you know me. <laughs> <laughs> up, I've already done my 10K run and you know the jobs yep. around the house 3k so. swim and exactly that's oh yeah right. all of that all done that. the hedges all the kind of rush the car yep. mate yep. um it is an absolute joy to be chatting with you as always but i do i am contractually obliged as our listeners well know to mention the <laughs> business you work for and good news is i remember what it is actually so it's a private online investment club but what's the oh name of gosh. it oh my gosh um just pick myself up off the ground um it's called strongman.com oh that's right i knew it i said i one day I'll remember them both, but for now, this we'll have to go with I, that. I, I'm surprised you got you got uh, got it <laughs> right that way around. Oh my god! You're going to change things up. Keep the listeners, you know, interested. <laughs> keep them engaged. It's all about it's all about listener retention. And I figured the bet. No, I've got no idea, uh, mate. Um, we have got a massive mailbag of questions. Thank you to everyone who sent questions in over the break. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we pre-recorded some, so we've got a heap to get through. I won't carry on. I will simply say, Tony asks a question. G'day, fellas. I've been investing with a high tolerance for risk and volatility for 15 years in managed funds, including Lakehouse Capital, ETFs, and directly into companies focusing on growth over dividends. Your podcast discussions, lessons learned, and insights have been valuable in my investment journey. Great work, guys. Thank you, Tony. For people, he asks, who are 10 to 15 years from retirement with an existing portfolio of low dividend paying investments and high capital gains tax liabilities, could you discuss the pros and cons of continuing to invest in high growth investments versus investments that are more likely to pay dividends? And how do these strategies impact what you do in retirement? Cheers, Tony. Tell me this a few times, mate. It's a it's a mm. slightly different version of it though, because this is this is kind of he's on the glide path to retirement. He's he's seeing that the the the, uh, the lights coming towards him, and he's saying, "Hey." If I make some good decisions now, I'm going to be at a better place then, potentially. Now, we obviously can't tell Tony what to do, partly because we're not allowed to give personal advice, partly because we don't know what the future holds either. Mm. But um, he asked a really good question, mate. So he's he's investing in you know high-growth businesses. He's, he's liking this stuff, but he's kind of saying, well, hang on, when retirement comes around, do I, should I change things or what, what should I consider when it comes to how I might change my investing approach? Yeah, well, there's no right answer, of course. So um, it, it depends. Um, <laughs> get that out of the way, nice and early this year. Um, the the uh, one one big factor for for me is the size of capital that I'm dealing with. Mm-hmm. You know, when like, you know, just, just to give you a stupid example, if I've got a billion dollars, <laughs> right? Um, I think I'm just going to keep investing whatever way I feel like mm-hmm. resonates with me the best. Because mm-hmm. whatever happens, I can always just draw down on my capital <laughs> as I need it. Right. right. You know, uh, with smaller amounts where I, where I can't afford to be as as uh, cavalier, um, there is something that's really nice about the reliability of dividends. So dividends. Mm-hmm. You know, let's say we go through a very difficult market environment. Dividends will probably be cut. That's generally the, the lesson of what happens in recessions and the rest of it. But we also know that those those payments tend to be far, far less volatile than the actual share prices yep. themselves, far more um, uh, 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 tax effective and all of those kind of really nice things. So, you know, at the same time, I would, if I am, and this is, this is going to require some sort of faith in, in your investing ability. But if I feel as though I'm reasonably confident, I can get, I'll make up some numbers. Let's say I can get a 10% return through my growth oriented investment strategy. And it comes with some volatility and the rest of it. But if I go with dividends, it'd be far more reliable, but maybe my total return um, is 7%. So I'm like, well, you know, d- there's a compromise that needs mm. needs to be made there and, and again that's why it depends the, the the person says they're very comfortable with with volatility they've been around the block a few times you know i i would suggest that mm. you know and again su- su- supposing there's a reasonable amount of capital there that i probably wouldn't change things too much certainly not on a wholesale basis maybe mm. for new capital that i'm putting in over the next 15 that's what years, he's talking I'm- about so let's yeah let's focus on that bit Okay, yeah. So, so I think you, 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 this is the this is the beauty of of equity investing is because it's so 
liquid and so divisible and the rest of it, you can have your cake and eat it too. You don't have to be, I'm a growth investor or I'm an income investor. It's like, well, I've got this very big growth oriented portfolio, but I will for new investments sort of tip it in. And maybe, maybe that, that um, proportion changes a little bit, but you know, it, it's, I can't see myself shifting too much in that way. I'd, I'd like to think that I'll just, I want to stay invested forever. Um, even though I'm very well aware that I won't live forever, I want to stay invested forever. <laughs> and as as I need money, I will draw down on it um, as, is, as is due. And yeah, there's tax considerations around that, but there's always tax considerations um, to, to some degree. And I, and I feel as though if, if my, my primary lens more than anything else is what's the best after-tax return that I can get, risk-adjusted. Yeah. And, yes. and I... I I, if I happen to feel as though I can get that with a strategy that I'm very well practiced at and have been doing for a very, very long time, I'm not going to switch to a, to a very different strategy just because it sort of seems to be within the, 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 that's what you do. You know, you're retired, you must invest in income stocks. I don't, I don't like that, that rationale. I don't know. It's a meandering answer, mate. What do you think? No, it's a good answer. I'm, I'm going to diverge slightly from you, but not with not with any great um, degree of passion. And we've kind of had this conversation a little bit before, so this won't be super new news for most of our listeners. Um, I, I so I agree with your approach completely, which is maximising the after tax return. We are a, we are a unity ticket on that one. Uh, to my mind, you look at uh, a fully franked dividend at a time when you might be in a zero tax bracket or close enough to it, mm. uh, you're effectively going to get, at the moment at least, the income plus potentially a tax refund on that. Uh, now, to p- compare that to paying capital gains tax. Now, again, if you're a zero tax bracket, there is no capital gains tax to pay, so that's all fine. But you don't get the, the, the benefit of the refund. And then as you go up the tax scales, things change markedly. Um, if you end up, if you're lucky enough to have you on the highest tax bracket or one of the higher tax brackets, uh, particularly if you're selling shares and you're crystallizing a large capital gain, for example, in a given year, you could be up for up to 40, was it 48% tax, whatever it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, a dividend's only ever going to be taxed at your marginal rate, less than 30 cent, or 30%, sorry, uh, franking. So uh, to my mind, mate, there is, a, there is a meaningful difference and a meaningful um consideration in terms of how you go about this. I'm not going to give you a specific answer, Tony. What I'm going to say is I'm going to get you to grab Excel out. Um, It sounds like you're someone who's reasonably familiar with numbers and just play around with some scenarios. And what you can kind of work out is thinking about what your dividend yields might be at that point, what your growth might be by then and what the difference is likely to be. And there's the problem is, as Andrew said, there is absolutely no uh, definite and clear answer, right? Because it depends on the assumptions you make. If you can get a 20% annual return in growth stocks or a 3% dividend yield, then it's a really easy answer, right? A 3% dividend yield on an ongoing company. Very, very simple. If you can get a 2% dividend yield now in a company that's growing 15% a year, that dividend itself is going to be massive at that point and you're going to have got some returns. Or if you try to invest in growth stocks, you get roughly the market return. You could have invested in the market return and got a higher yield from other stocks and then had a much better after-tax return. So there is no there is no simple answer. I my, my general view is if you're a moderately okay investor and you can get the market, maybe plus a little bit, maybe not. Um, so for me, for example, I have, I'm have i kind of evolving my strategy the way Andrew's talking about it. Inside super, which is massively tax protected, I'm going to keep picking stocks and just doing what I've always done. In my personal portfolio, I'm not selling anything. But as I think about making new investments, I am absolutely thinking about what if I never have to sell a share? What if in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, I can, let's assume I'm going to live for 60 years, uh, I can uh, I can draw down super, super tax-effective income without having to sell anything. And that income is larger over time because it keeps growing in, in quality businesses. That to me sounds like a pretty attractive way to do it. If I, if I know I don't have to sell, then I'm kind of capping my maximum tax payable at the marginal rate less the franking credit. Mm. And that's pretty attractive compared to paying 20, 30, 40%, so call it 10 to 20 percentage points more in tax on that same dollar of earnings. So if, but you know, the, the key question is how, how, how well, how significantly does your growth investing diverge from what you would earn in income? That's the only question. Mm. And if it diverges by enough to cover the increased tax, then keep investing in growth assets. Mm. If, to my mind, I'm not sure, I'd like to think so, but I don't want to regret my hubris in retirement. So part of me is literally saying, okay, well, if I, you know, if I, at worst, if I do well, it's kind of what, so the range of outcomes, right? If I invest in quality dividend paying stocks, the range of outcomes on the downside is reasonably small. 
if I, assuming I diversify properly and all that kind of stuff. So if I can kind of cap my downside, if you like, or I'm not capping it because it could go anywhere. The market could crash. I could lose all my money. I could make terrible investments. But, you know, if I can assume I'm going to get the market return-ish, uh, but I'm also going to get a nice 2 3 4 5% yield and franking credits versus chasing maybe a couple of 3 percentage points more than the market and paying full capital gains tax, even though it's half the rate, uh, I'm still probably going to go for a more income than I would have. So as I get closer to retirement, I will be consciously thinking about tilting my new dollars further towards as I get closer. So it's, a, it's an ongoing process further towards income. So I don't have to sell those shares in retirement. Not because I, you know, again, I should absolutely want to pay more tax. We've talked about this so many times. I should want to pay a lot of tax. If I can make a squillion dollars, if I can make a $2 million profit, then hey, I've got to pay a million dollars in tax. That's not great, but I'll do it because I've got a million dollars left over. That's a spectacular problem versus having no tax to pay on $100,000. It's a no-brainer. It's a no brainer. Uh, but given the, the you know, am I going to be, am I sure I can pick the stocks well enough? I don't know. Am I happy to get the what's a relatively okay return super tax effective yes okay so that's how i'm starting to change if you think about it, the glide path at some point i don't think i'll ever be 100 income stocks at all but if i get closer to that over time or in that direction over time that's kind of how i think i'll continue to invest over the next 15 20 years the, you know the thing that um so yeah it, it's a matter of it's taste right. of all of these yeah. things yeah. <laughs> yeah where where i think that you need to be whatever path you choose what you need to be really careful is to avoid what what i probably could call a dividend trap and i give you a really classic example i'm not i'm not cherry picking here at all well to some extent i am but i mean i could (laughs) trust me i could choose far more favorable (laughs) examples if i wanted to but let's go back i don't know 2016 right and i want to make this shift and i've been a growth investor so i take all my money out of csl now 2016 this thing is trading on a 1.7 percent unfranked yield really i mean they pay a dividend um but it's you know you're not you're not buying csl for the dividend and by the way of all the growth stocks i could have picked there are things that have gone up 100x so this is this is okay but you know i thought well no no no. i want to i want to get dividends i'm going to pick another blue chip quote unquote, blue chip stock. Uh, I'll go with ANZ, but after all, this is now offering me a 6% yield at this point in time in 2016, and it's fully frank. So it's probably an 8% grossed up yield. I mean, you look at those two examples and it's a no brainer, both big, solid, stable companies, decades of history, very reliable, likely to, to, to be around for the long term. Well, let's, let's play this forward. Um, over that intervening period, we've had CSL double its dividends. It's now paying about $3. It was paying $1.70 per share. Now it's paying $3.22 per share. Moreover, the share price has, has gone from like about 100 bucks to almost $300. So it's an insanely great return. And, I'm, and this isn't high risk stuff. This is CSL after all. ANZ, the share price is actually a little bit below where it was in, in, in 2016 and the dividends dropped a little bit. So, so you have this thing where people are sort of at a high level make ostensibly a sensible decision because they want dividends. This is a much better dividend yield. But when you when you contrast the two, it's like one is far, far, far superior than the other. So, so yield is obviously an important consideration, but it's only a, a partial consideration. What also very much matters, there's no point, what I'm saying is there's no point getting a great yield if the total return is still going to be really ordinary. And 100%. you've, you've yep. had this massive opportunity cusp by taking your money out of something that was actually doing incredibly well and is going to give you far, far better returns, even accounting for the tax, even accounting for the fact that I have to sell some shares to realize some profit. So I just, I'd factor all of that in mind. Too often people go to mediocrity because the yield seems really, really attractive. And put it this way, if the yield is very attractive, it's because the market doesn't think that there's much growth potential there and and sometimes when you add it all together you're far worse off by by going for the high yielding stock you know um yeah i love that example it's a really it's a really really strong one i I will say i'm talking my book here no surprise for anyone listening one of my favorite dividend stocks is solpats yeah and the yield was about 2.6 percent last i checked um i've got looking at comps exchange pull up really quickly here uh, yield currently is, I say really quickly, 2.9%. There you go. Share price must have fallen a bit or maybe the dividends increased. I don't know which. Um, these guys have been market beating over a really long period of time and they're paying a nice dividend. So when I talk about dividend is absolutely not, increased. Yeah. And it's, it's important yep. you make the point actually, Andrew, because to Tony's point, when I, when I say I'm investing in, I, I'm going to tilt myself towards income stocks, I'm not talking about buying the banks and Telstra, right? I'm not talking about own Telstra shares for the record. Um, 
I, uh, small number. I'm not talking about buying the max. I'm not saying go and find the highest yielding stocks ever. What I'm saying is, no. if I buy Sol Pats, I think over, you know, between now and retirement and then through retirement, do I think Sol Pats is going to keep beating the market? Yep. Do I think the dividend yield is going to continue to rise? Yep. Uh, Domino is another great example. I happen to own those shares as well. Sorry. Uh, but we've talked about this before, mate. The, the, mm. the, the dividend growth over 10 years has been phenomenal, right? And so the income you're getting from Domino's Mm. is and I, I'm gonna, I won't make the numbers up it's, it's a large proportion of the share price 10 years ago mm. something like 60% of the share price I think something like that so mm. the, uh, the, yield, the return you're getting in, in cash now was worth buying that not as an income stock specifically but as a business that if it grew and kept paying out a dividend profit would grow share price would grow dividend would grow there's, there's you know you want income growth not just income so I um I, you know you I think glad you called it out, mate. Because when I say I'm tilting towards income, I don't want people to hear. Oh, he's going to start buying the banks and Transurban. Uh, I will probably never buy the banks. I probably won't be ever buy Transurban. Um, no guarantees on either of those, but probably not. Uh, but I love soft hats or or uh, brickworks I own or um, those sort of things that I think are going to be just super long term great businesses. I hope never to sell my soft hat shares either, by the way, because I hope that over time, yes, the value increases, but the dividend also goes up such that it generates enough income that I don't need to. That'd be that'd be the perfect scenario. Even a stock like Apple, right? We've talked about that mm. before, but this was a growth stock for thirty years, mm. and now it's a really good income stock. Why? Because they've got to a point where they've matured, mm. and that growth becomes income. So you've also got that reality. If you can buy a really great long-term, now again, cherry picking because we're looking back in with hindsight, but if you can find a really great, you know, quality business that has a multi-decade growth story and at some point in that journey, it goes from, okay, we can't redeploy this cash anymore. Let's buy back some shares and pay some dividends. Great. Again, best best of both worlds. I own Berkshire. I would reckon in my lifetime, Berkshire will start paying a dividend. Yep. Will it be a massive yield? No. Will it be a nice yield? Yes. Have I done well on the stock? Yes. So, you know, don't don't eschew growth companies. It, look, if you think it's a... It, I wouldn't... If I'm going to... I'll wrap this up. But if I'm going to retirement, I wouldn't buy cheap... If you're looking for income, I wouldn't buy traditional value cheap stuff that you're going to sell in a year or two's time because it's you can turn... Yeah, the, the tax on that over and over again is probably not going to be great. But if you can get a multi-bag, a multi-year, hopefully decade-long winner, like Andrew was talking about, mm. and eventually may or maybe maybe doesn't maybe it does pay a dividend, that's probably the sweet spot I reckon for thinking about going closer to retirement if you have enough funds. If you need to maximise your income right, right, right now, you're going to have to look for the higher yielding stocks and just go with it. Right? If you need to draw down capital every every month from your portfolio, it needs to start tomorrow. You haven't got the runway. But 10 to 15 years out, I think you've got plenty of room to cleverly pick great companies that maybe have that sort of opportunity. By the way, Apple's still growing really well. You know, you can yeah, you can I'll have you, yeah. you can have best of both worlds. Yeah. And that that the best income I remember saying this repeatedly when I was with the full running the dividend service. The best mm-hmm. the best income stocks are not the highest yielding stocks. <laughs> the best income stocks are the ones that have the most reliability in their payments and that those payments increase at a at an above um, you know, CPI rate for a long, long period yeah. of time. Give me a 3% yielding stock where the dividend grows 10% every year over something that's given me a 6 7% that is just flat. Over the long term, one just completely trumps the other on a total return basis. Mm. Um, so yeah, just worth, worth making that point. Beautiful. Let's move on to another question. This one from Damien who says, love your work as always. He addressed this to me. He said, I have a question for you and rampaging Roy Simeon for the mailbag pod if you have time. (laughs) It has to do with buying US stocks, we've done this a little bit too, uh, when the dollar is so low. Despite the depressed prices of, say, Google, a dollar means it is not as cheap. Likewise, the NASDAQ ETF. I remember in April 2020, I think I'd love to buy some Microsoft, but the Aussie dollar was at 55 cents. So I'm considering the hedged versions now. Is this reasonable? Or am I missing the actual point of the hedged ETFs? Are these good versions to buy where the dollar is down well below average and purchase garden variety versions when it's closer to the norm? And he then says, this is the other one too. Secondly, if using them, is the general idea of hedged funds we keep long-term despite the increased MER or management expense rate or sell and recycle into the normal version when the world smiles on our dollar again? I feel like I'm missing something, which with my general aim would be quite likely. Thanks for the show, the laughs and the insights. So we talked about the we talked about the what to buy, mate. But what I wanted to throw this question out from Damien was the second, which is what do we do if you, if you've bought a hedged? And I've said before, so we've recommended the hedged version of the Nasdaq to our members about three months ago. I think it was dollars up a little bit since then. We might have done it at sixty five ish cents, sixty nine ish now, close enough. But to, to Damien's point, what do you do, mate? If you bought a hedged ETF, 
how do you think about it as the dollar goes up? Do you sell it and get out and redeploy the money in a non-hedge version? Do you hang on to it and just dollar cost averaging to both each when the opportunity arises? How do you think about that sort of approach on the selling side? I think I just I think one general truism to always keep in mind more broadly is that there's there's always I think almost always a compromise to be had. So for any benefit yeah. that you may see, there's there's mm -hmm. a cost to that. And it, yep. again, not right or wrong. It just depends what what you uh, value more. But be be prepared that that you are mm. you are um, taking a compromise. Now on on this instance, uh, as is pointed out, you'll pay a higher cost because all that hedging costs a lot of money. You also take take the risk that actually maybe the currency will move in your favor. Uh, as well. Now, for some people, they go, well, that's actually great because I've only got a three-year horizon and I'm very, very uh, convicted that the, the dollar is going to do X. And so maybe that's the, the, right, the right choice for you. I personally tend to avoid the hedged things. Um, mm -hmm. One, because they're more expensive. Two, because over the, the, the timeframe that I'm investing I'm absolutely guaranteed that the, the FX rates will move all around the place, but I just know that it'll be not the dominant driver of returns. The dominant driver of returns will be growth. So for example, if I've invested over in a US stock and that has compounded to earnings at 15% per year and the Aussie dollar goes from, um, you know, 60 cents up to 80 cents. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to cop a little bit on the exchange there, but, but the, it is going to be dwarfed by the returns I'm going to be made, I'm going to get from from the um, from from the lift in earnings. So it's kind of uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I I feel as though we all get too clever with currency, and I'm also I'm also very hyper aware that like predicting currency is just a mugs game. It's just so yeah. so <laughs> difficult exactly. to know what's 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 yeah. going to happen. Yeah. So it's kind of like. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't tend to, to worry about it. Now, you might be thinking, well, I only just want to have my money here. And again, I'm, I'm very, I happen to be a person who's convinced that the Aussie dollar is going to go in a certain direction. And maybe you will be happy to take that higher cost because you want the certainty and you just want to remove that as, as a factor. And that's fine. There's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that. But I would just sort of say, when you look at the driver of returns over any sort of meaningful time frame, so I'm sort of talking about five, ten years, sort of plus, it doesn't tend to be that big a deal. It, it tends it tends to be a, a far smaller driver of returns than what the earnings growth is going to be. So I don't I don't worry about it. Yep, uh, I've I obviously I've already said I've taken a different view, which is that uh, I, I don't worry about it per se. But if you had the opportunity to, when, when the dollars are an extreme, uh, I think it's giving up potential return or costing yourself more than you need to to ignore that fact so i like the nasdaq etf i own a heap of it um i am not putting money into that etf when the dollar is at 55 cents right because it just it makes no sense to me that over time i don't i think it's unlikely that that remains at historic lows um you know um we, we talk about cyclical commodity prices and other things. You don't have to predict them to know that if iron ore is $185 a tonne, it's probably expensive and it's $20 a tonne is probably cheap. And somewhere in between, the closer it gets to the long run average, the harder it is to tell. Um, so I think there's, there's opportunity there. Um, in terms of my answer, Damien, to your question, I think it's worth... I, I don't know what we'll do with for our members at Share Advisor, but it's probable that once we get to a more normal level because of Andrew's very very good points about trying to hedge or trying to predict currencies and also the cost of that we'll switch back straight to the unhedged version we're not trying to get the absolute we're not trying to squeeze the last drop out of the lemon i'm just saying hey the stocks are cheap and you can buy the, the nasdaq stocks are cheap right now to your point about microsoft 55 cents and you can buy them without having the currency risk going the other way because you know 55 to 80 cents for example um, I mean that's a lot. That's half your return, yeah. right? So, so you got to be you got to be a little bit careful not to ignore it entirely. You can simply choose not to invest at all, by the way, which is one option, or use the hedge version. But yeah, once we get to once we get closer to the long run average, we'll probably move it to hold. Once we're above that, we probably will recommend members sell and redeploy money into the Nasdaq ETF without the hedging. Um, the only difference will be we probably will just be mindful of how close we get to one year at that point. Uh, again, for capital gains tax purposes, no point selling it 363 days and paying full tax versus 367 days and, and paying half the tax. So we'll probably we'll probably keep an eye on that. But yes, um, we did it because we thought the, the investments were inexpensive and the dollar was uh, the wrong but the wrong side of the the, the bell curve. Uh, and if but we're right about both those things normalizing not again, we're not trying to pick the direction or the size of moves. We're just saying, hey, I want exposure to the NASDAQ if I can do it without having the risk of currency, I'll take it. 
and then at some future point we'll absolutely say good that played out we've made some money let's go and take that money and redeploy it in the unhedged version for all the reasons andrews talked about mm. nice uh question from uh looks like an anonymous questioner uh from anonymous it is hi legends i'm a new listener at the moment, I'm getting through as many as five episodes a day Whoa. while sick at home with COVID. Oh, jeez. Oh, okay. Sorry. All right. My girlfriend and I, both 34, have been saving to three Vanguard ETFs in the past five years. We're planning to maximize our super contributions for the next year. 95% world and 5% Australia, passive indices, and only 0.1% fees per year. During lockdown, we bought an apartment in Sydney. We recently refinanced. And with our extra repayments and increase in value, we have a good amount of excess funds available in the offset. Nice. Our plan A is to use these funds together with our Vanguard savings to buy a second house, rent it out, and move in after a few years. The logic here is if we don't buy now and price increase again, we might miss the boat. After failing at a few auctions and recent interest rate increases, my future value calculation was adjusted. Now I'm assuming, brackets guessing, I like this, an average interest rate and cost to maintain the house over 30 years to be about 5 to 7% per year. Now I'm looking at plan B putting it all in two broad-based passive ETFs, NASDAQ and the ASX 300. Also, doing this saves me 70 grand in stamp duty on day one. Hmm. In five years, if our apartment's value goes up, I might have the option to refinance again and repeat. My issue, in my future value calculation, I am struggling to place a value on the utility and benefits that come with upgrading to a house with a garden. Is it the rent I would have paid if not owned? If I only focus on returns and the risk of leverage, the ETF options win. However, maybe it comes down to personal preference and the opportunity cost of missing out on a house you really want to live in. Actually, in saying that, maybe I should just rent the dream house. Do you have any comments on other risks or opportunity costs I may have missed? General advice only, and sorry for the long email. Keep up the good work, guys. I can only imagine my circumstance if I had your podcast available in my 20s. Anyway, I count myself very lucky in getting a job in the best country and discovering Jack Bogle five years ago thanks to Google's algorithm. That's from Anonymous. Really good questions, mate. Yeah. Um, there's, the, there's the kind of the unmeasurable un uh, house and garden. There is the future value calculation and opportunity costs of what else should you consider. What are your thoughts? Yeah, um, there was one part in there that was just like the, the FOMO part, which is I just urge caution with. If, if, mm. if it's like, oh, I need to do this because it'll, it'll continue to run away is... is, is in, in and of itself, not a great place to start. Um, so I just be careful with that. I, but other than that, I would just, I would just look at it in the way I look at all investing. Here's, here's my platter of options here. Mm -hmm. um, what one is going to give me, and, and let's, let's look at all in costs. Let's not do what too many property investors do. I bought it this, I sold it that. I'm not going to factor in all the, the rates, agents fees, interest costs, stamp duty, <laughs> and the rest of it. So all in, after tax, what am I, what am I looking at? And reasonably so, based, based mm. perhaps on some long-term historical averages is probably about as best place as you, as you can start. Um, and then, and then also layer onto that some some hassle factor as well. The great thing about one of the great things about shares is it just you know I don't I don't have to deal with tenants or <laughs> leaky roofs or any of this other. Like I don't think people have a very romantic notion of it. anyone out there listening who is a landlord. I'm sure you'll be nodding furiously in agreement. It's like yeah, it can be a pain in the backside. Yeah. Um, so so factor in in all of that. Why? I I honestly don't get this this strategy a lot of people do it where they they rent themselves and then they buy a house and then they rent that out with the idea of moving in it just seems like a really roundabout way to get what you want particularly if the returns that you're getting in that uh, are, are inferior to what I would have gotten elsewhere as a saving vehicle to get me to where I to where I want to be so um I don't know. Again, there's no right or wrong. I, I, and I'm, I'm very, it's very hard for me to answer it given my very extreme prejudices against an, out, <laughs> an outlook on, on property. I just you have think, said before, though, that you know, it's the, the, the security and the my own place stuff, you've talked about that. Not You didn't include that in some of your previous calculations. Oh, yeah. Do you have yeah. any reflections on that particularly? Yeah. I mean, renting renting is, is to my mind, superior in terms of, what you can, how you can grow your wealth. Mm. Um, 
uh, and again, I'll just say, I'll just, I'll just point to historical averages. It just, it just tends to be the way it is. That the, the massive hole in that reasoning, and this is what I found out firsthand, is, is that there's just such terrible rent, uh, tenancy protections that you have very little security, and it's a very stressful life. I mentioned, I confided in you beforehand that we've just been given our marching orders from our landlord um, after 18 months, and so this will be going into our seventh house in, in a bit over a decade. Um, that, that didn't, that didn't feature in the spreadsheet and that's a huge cost and irritation and stress and all these kinds of things. So there is something to be said that goes outside of the pure return assumptions, hundred percent, hundred percent. Um, so yeah, I don't know. What, what do you think? What do you think? Um, I think it's a great question. I, I, so I've said before on the podcast, I, we did the numbers, my wife and I, about do we... So leverage is a really, really seductive thing, right? Mm. Do we borrow a little bit, a lot of money, put in a little bit of money? What do the returns look like if you uh, you know put them over X number of years? Uh, when you include all those costs that you've already talked about, Andrew, and I, we, we had a massive spreadsheet. I wanted it to be true. I, want, I wanted to think I could put down uh, whatever the amount was, uh, 100 grand and, and buy a million dollar house to invest, right? Because we, we, we have our own house. We have... A, a place we're not looking to to move from one to the other but um you know if i put the money in the market i get x percent if i put the money in you know in property i can get a 10x asset dollar value wise no margin calls and you know hopefully gee on that on that minimum deposit the cash return on that um you know yes you got to include the other cost but the cash return hopefully is good enough i couldn't make it work i just could not make it work versus investing instead assuming now you've got to assume interest rates you've got to assume rental rates you've got to assume rental growth and they're all like other modeling we've talked about already lots and lots and lots of moving parts i just went did it went i'm i'm not i, I can't make this work i can make more heroic assumptions but if i have to do that now i'm more comfortable in shares so i i will confess to probably uh, assuming that uh shares might do well and, and maybe probably might not do well uh, so I wasn't I wasn't horrible about it, but I didn't necessarily you know assume massive returns from property for for mathematical reasons we've talked about before, mm. and I couldn't get to it. I just couldn't get to a better return. Now it takes a while for it to come through because you're compounding a smaller amount of money. So, but by year 15, 20, 25, 30, which you know a mortgage is thirty years long, um, the, the the sheer dollar value, the future value, to use your your question, anonymous, your your term, I couldn't make it work. So for me, it was a straight out, okay, we save with shares. Now we might change at some point. I'll keep looking around. If I get a great opportunity to buy a property that looks really cheap, then you know we'll, we'll consider it. But for now, we, we ended up going with that. So mate, I don't reckon you have missed anything. That being said, I'm, I'm doing an investment calculus, not a lifestyle calculus. And I've said a million times, the home you live in is a lifestyle asset. It's not an investment asset. Mm. Uh, you know, if I assume maybe you guys, uh, you, you, you've got a girlfriend, right? Maybe you get married. Maybe you have kids. Maybe you don't. Um, maybe you want a house with a, with a, a, a yard. Maybe you want stability of where you're living. Um, not have to be moved if, a, if you get evicted or not have to worry about what the rent might be in a few years, all that kind of stuff. There are heaps and heaps and heaps of stuff. So I, I'll, I'll give you the reverse example. I could sell my house right now, go and rent somewhere and use the money I get from my house to invest. And I'm not doing that. So by definition, you know, the, the counterfactual, if you like, um, we talk about shares, you know, you, could, you should approach your portfolio as if they were sold every night. Would I have the same portfolio tomorrow morning? If not, I should make some changes. Mm. I could do that with my property as well. We could sell this house. We could, we could take the money we get from it and invest it in shares or something else and go and rent. Now we choose not to for those reasons. So I'm not going to tell you what you should do. I think you probably know from the sound of it, you, you ask about the utility of a house with a garden. Um, you may have your own answer already, but just keep that in mind. There are some things that are bigger than just the numbers. 100%. I think, I mean, honestly, this is this is one of the, my great um, laments is, is that the, the financialization of housing has been a, a very, very big negative for society. Yeah. I mean- 100%. I, I saw this really, really great um, uh, tweet the other day. I it's just- find it for you here um it's 2023 it's still insane that we've decided to make housing a technology at least 100 centuries old scarce enough <laughs> to consume a major fraction of gdp in a speculative unproductive deflationary asset that we could otherwise allocate to solving real problems mm. i think a lot of i think there's a lot of truth in that and then there is there is definitely a monetary premium in housing because it is it is a yeah. it has become an investment vehicle we have put incentives around it to make it as an intent for that that kind of stuff. Now the difference here is you might say, well, so what? People can invest in whatever they can. That's true. 
But if I'm if I'm mucking around with bonds or equities, I'm not screwing around with people's lives. Where potentially, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm speaking from experience here, you do get screwed <laughs> over as 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 a tenant, not because yeah. of any nefarious thing, because everyone's going to play for their own interests, kind mm-hmm. of thing. And and when the return profile from an investment property today in Australia doesn't come from the yield. In fact, it hasn't come from the yield for a long time. In fact, it's it's gotten to the point and it's been at this point for a while where it's like, mm. in fact, I'm happy to have a negative yield in real terms yeah. because I get a tax benefit. I just I just don't care. Um, you you get you get to a really you get to a situation where landlords really have no choice. If you ever want to realize again, you have to sell. And for some reason, we've felt as though to sell, you've got to kick out the tenants before you do that kind of stuff. So it's sort of, there's a, I'm, I'm not coming at it from a purely investment lens here, but more from a societal lens. It's just, yeah. there is just the growing wealth divide in our country and others. A big, a big part of it has been the financialization of housing. So it's a completely different topic, but it's sort of like mm. big part of the value is in the monetary premium and not in the utility value. And I just really wanted to hammer that point just to sound like a bit of an old fogey here, but the biggest, <laughs> the biggest consideration I think for people is not what is the return that I can get out of this, but it's just like, where do I want to live? What kind of house do I have? What kind of lifestyle do I want to do? What can I afford? What is prudent? And for the person who is buying a house today, regardless Mm -hmm. of whatever you might think of the property market, who is able to easily afford that and allow for a buffer of higher rates and plans to live in that for the next 20 years, like that is, that is a perfectly sensible decision. Even if property does drop 20% over the next few years, exactly. You know, it's like it's a perfectly decent decision because because why? Because who cares what the market is doing? You've got incredible utility of the shelter and this wonderful house that you get to live in. And frankly, over the 20-year time frame that we're talking about, you might look back and go, oh, I could have got a better return had I put it all in Bitcoin or whatever, but who cares? You've had this incredible, you've had this, you've had this incredible utility that you've built a life within. <laughs> and 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 that that trumps a lot of other considerations. So anyway, rant over. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Let's move on to a question from Amrita. Hi, guys. A question for the podcast. Dear Thelma and Louise. <laughs> brackets, because you guys stick to your guns, not because you drive off cliffs. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. These rants get a bit cliffy at some points. Um, I have a question and a request. My question. I've heard you guys and others raise the point that when there is tough economic outlook or interest rates rise, it's the people in the margins and the poor who suffer first and the most. Hmm. Is there a way to mitigate this? If you guys were in charge of everything for a day, what would you do to protect the most vulnerable? That's yeah. a um, that's a big that's a big question. That is a big um, one. We'll try and keep it reasonably shortish, mate, because we've already waxed lyrical as we like to do. Uh, we could have hours and hours of podcasts if we just continue on this stuff. Um, do you have a thought? So yeah, it's very political. So we're going to get in trouble for this, but um, ideological I, rather than political. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. It. it oh man, you. What do I say? Go first. You go first. Please go first. <laughs> I know. I'm happy for you to go first if you want to, but if you want to have some no, 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 thinking no, time, first. feel free. Go first. Uh, so, look, I've, I've got a couple of thoughts. Um, uh, we know that rates impact. So, only a third of us have mortgages, a third own and a third rent. Uh, and we also know that even of those with mortgages, uh, some sort of representative skew, some are on their 30th year, some are on their first year. Um, and so, you know, the price they paid 30 years ago, the amount of loan left, the size of that interest rate relative to their what should be growing income over that 30 years there's a very small proportion of the population who are hit hardest by it now it's always been true by the way so i don't want to necessarily over egg the whole everything's changed therefore this is a, a new problem but it is a problem uh, i've said before uh on a listener suggestion actually i'm not crediting this claiming this myself by the way if you're a listener who suggests this email me because i can't remember who it was um someone said we should use super contributions rather than interest rates uh, or as well as interest rates. In other words, because you know, uh, if you've got a mortgage, if you're renting, if you own your place outright, you're probably still working most of the time. And so it would be broader if we said, well, we've got to slow the economy down. Let's take half a percent or a percent of super contributions, oh, sorry, out of, out of pay and put into super contributions. So we get the extra money in super, but we don't get it now. So we're forced to tighten our collective belts in a more even way. Similarly, when we want to speed things up, do the reverse. So I, I like that a lot. I do also think GST is something we should look at for these purposes. It'll never happen because the politics is just ugly and, and painful. Um, also, by the way, it means taxes raised and people generally hate that. That's why I like the super idea because we're getting it for ourselves later. Mm. Um, so I would, I would do that. Um, I think 
we probably should speak speaking the poor and vulnerable specifically rather than generally. Um, you asked me about that, so I would also index um, welfare payments on a quarterly rather than yearly basis based on inflation. So when we see the sort of thing we've had recently with with inflation ramping up really quickly, the uh, welfare payments will lag those increases. So I think it's important to think about that. Um, also, too, the reality is that we know that the um, not the essentials, sorry, the essentials are a larger portion of poorer people's incomes. And so when those prices go up, they simply have less ability to um, uh, absorb those price increases. So I think doing it more quickly would make a whole lot of sense. I mean, we can change a whole lot of different things in terms of broader economic policy, mm. but you're saying about tough economic outlook when rates rise. In other words, you've asked the question about at a point in time when things are getting tougher. So that's different to what I would do generally in social or economic policy broadly. But if you're saying, you know, how do we how do we respond for the poor and vulnerable in those circumstances? There are a couple of things I'd think about. Andrew? Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, just, there's such blunt, some of these policies are just so blunt. And I think it, I think there's there's two arguments with, with things like income distribution and redistribution and all this other kind of stuff. But I... I, th- I think that we need to recognize the role that luck plays in a lot of success. There's plenty mm-hmm. of, whenever you read the, I used to read a lot of autobiographies or biographies of sort of rich, <laughs> successful entrepreneurs and that. Yeah. And you know what the bottom line is of every single one of those books? I was really smart and I worked really hard and I deserved every amount of my success. And that's kind of largely true. They were smart people and they worked really hard. But what about all the smart, hardworking people that didn't meet it? And then there's just, yep. there's just a lot of luck and timing in all of these Something else, mate. What about yeah. the people who aren't smart? Like, it's, so uh, you know, we 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 feel like our, our own smartness is our own doing. At best, it's it's environmental, and at, at worst, it's DNA. Yeah. The fact, you know, to your point about luck. I mean, being smart is lucky. Having the biology to work hard, it, the DNA to work hard, is largely luck as well. I think even in those things, we say, oh, "Well, I worked hard." Yeah, you did, and and you know, you probably were you probably were predisposed to hard work. You probably were predisposed to a high intellect. Even yeah. those things are, are still luck. I think. If Jeff Bezos was born in a Sri Lankan slum, right? You know, it, it, same person, same abilities, and the I mean, just, he never became anything. He just didn't have yeah. the opportunity to. There's, there's just huge amounts of of luck within all of that. So I, I am a proponent for for recognizing that those who have quote unquote made it, they have been enabled broadly by society that they they live in. And, and congratulations to their success. And if they've genuinely created value for society, they deserve that success. And, and we need that very powerful incentive mechanism to encourage people to take risks and try and make the world a better place, even if they fail. I'm, so I'm, I'm all for that. And I'm all for you reaping the wonderful rewards, even, even when luck has had a, a, a bit of a, a, a part to do with that. But sometimes people go too far, I think, and they say, well, if you're not as rich and successful, it means you're, you're just lazy or you're dumb or, you know, and, and, and they, they feel as though are oh, that people will just take advantage of the system. And if we make them too comfortable, then no, no one will ever do anything. And it's absolute rubbish, by the way. So mm. there's a really interesting thing I saw recently in Finland, actually, the number of homelessness, homeless people has just fallen off a cliff and they switched to a, what they call a housing first concept. So they basically said, whatever happens, you get a house, no matter what, no questions asked. So it was like, actually, it's a really nice thing. Like just, it's a kind thing to do, but also here's, here's the thing. It was cheaper than the status quo. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you've got all these homeless people off the street. So level, so, so one, a lot less suffering in the world. That's a good thing. But there was also society was safer. You've got less people in less desperate situations. They're not, they're not likely to break into a house and, and mug people. And that's because, you know, they don't, they're not at that point of desperation. Don't think you'd never do that either. You absolutely would if, if situations got dire enough. So there's all these sort of good reasons to do it. But the thing that always strikes me is just like, no, just forget about all the nice, warm, fuzzy feeling stuff. It's actually cheaper than all of the other welfare and it's like and and things that are associated with it much like the portuguese drug policy where they sort of decriminalized a lot of stuff and they put their efforts not so much on on policing it and and punishing it but by helping people get out of this issue and we saw the rates of of transmissible diseases and overdoses and all the things that you if you were to sort of say what do we want to minimize well we want to minimize harmful drug use it's like well this evidence-based policy here is we we have thoroughly not like on the margins it looks like it's three percent better like just massively massively better cheaper with better outcomes um i feel as though 
that kind of stuff applies here as, as well. So what we want to do, I think, as a society is make sure that everyone, regardless of the lottery you get with where you're born, the capabilities, the intelligence, you know, that you had, that you've got the, pot, the, the chance to be your best self. And if you manage to, if life has, has dealt you some good hands and you manage to be wonderfully successful, good on you. But we also know after a point that like, you know, once you've, once you've got $10 million, the next 10 million doesn't make any difference to your lifestyle. You know, it just doesn't, right? So it's, it comes a point where it's like vastly diminishing re, uh, uh, our returns. So I, I kind of feel as though we, abs- I'm not, people always think you sound like a massive socialist when you say this, but <laughs> I, I, I feel as though we absolutely should harness all the benefits of this wonderful capitalist system. But, not for not warm fuzzy feelings, but purely for the, the betterment of of what society looks like in aggregate. We should give everyone the ability to to be their best, uh, and that requires a bit of redistribution. Now, the devil's in the detail and how you absolutely and how you ab- actually uh, administer all of that, <laughs> and that's a whole other rabbit hole. But generally speaking, that's that's where I kind of sit on the spectrum. You want to design. Someone put it. I might have mentioned this before, but what you want to do is you want to design a society any way you like. Here's the rules: design it whatever way you want. But the rule, is, but you can't choose your station in life, right? <laughs> so if yeah. I if I'm in the top one percent, and I know I'm going to be in the top one percent after I make all these godlike changes, I'm going to design society in a way that just benefits me, <laughs> um, even if I think I'm not. But if I can't choose where I'm born or what circumstances I'm born at, I'm going to probably try and design a system and a society that's very different. And I think you start at that point, and you end up with something that's not just nicer and, and fairer, but actually on aggregate better for all of us. I would much rather be someone, I would much rather be the rich and elite in Finland than in Zimbabwe. Right, exactly. You know what I mean? Like I'm still the rich and the elite, but then one, I can walk down the street at night and not worry. You know, I'm not, it's just a safer, better society where I'm actually, um, I'm actually far, far, far better off. And everyone, everyone gets a more equal share in the spoils. Anyway, it's very, very ideological. Uh, the the email comes with a question or request. Do my question whether you're considering a themed episode like you have with Bitcoin, which was fantastic by the way in brackets, but about the history of economics and recessions. I'm old enough to think that Scott doesn't hate me on principle, <laughs> but young enough that the GFC was my first recession. Uh, Scott, you have a huge advantage, and your relative age gives you valuable life experience. I'd love to hear both your thoughts about what happened in recent recessions, what was different to our current environment and what lessons we can learn from the past. Also, in terms of valuing stocks, are there important metrics we need to think about differently? For example, it wasn't until recently, when I think Andrew mentioned that PE compression happens in recessions, that I realised this was a thing and might be important to know. Thank you for your podcast, which I've been listening to regularly for the past few years. I always learn something new each week. That's a, a really good point. We won't do it now, but we might we might pick that one up at a, at a future time. Mm. By the way, there, hasn't been a, there wasn't a recession in 2008 in Australia. Yeah. Correct. Um, in fact, and COVID may have been a very unique situation. So yeah, yeah, it's actually we're at 30 years without a recession. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go with a question from Dunks who says, Dear Scott and Andrew, I've been listening for three and a half years and a Motley Fool subscriber to share advisor, dividend investor, hidden gems and extreme opportunities. Thank you, Dunks. I greatly enjoy your discussions. And even if I don't agree with every opinion, I respect the thoughtful reasoning given. Can I say, Dunks, just quickly, mate? I love that approach. I love that you've enunciated it so nicely because that's kind of you know we don't we don't hold out any expectations of being right all the time. We all everyone likes to think we're right. Otherwise, you know, no one's deliberately wrong. Um, but if we've done a half decent job of at least giving you thoughtful reasoning, if you can disagree also thoughtfully, that's exactly. Uh, what hopefully good um, kind of, you know, just democratic discourse is supposed to be about. So mm. while, we're, while we're being philosophical, um, thank you, mate, for the way you've put that. Thank you for listening anyway. Um, I think if more people did that, uh, you know, people disagree with us sometimes, mostly because they're wrong. No, I'm kidding. Uh, mostly probably because we're wrong, but um, but thank you for, for doing it that way. Given I've listened for so long, says Dunks, I feel I should know the answer to this question, but I failed to join the dots. Can you please give me your opinions on your investment strategies when it comes to applying a core strategic and speculative discipline to your portfolios, i.e., do you roughly follow the 60-30-10 recommendations? I know you both take care in choosing which stocks, but when looking at opportunity costs, is it hard not to tend toward the more speculative end? Oh, yeah, it is hard, sorry, says. I greatly enjoy investing, and I'm fortunate enough that my portfolio is for wealth creation rather than the need for additional income. However, I'm more of a 40-30-30 split. I'm concerned I have a blind spot in my preference for the speculative or growth stocks, 
can you please alleviate my concern <laughs> or enlighten me to what I'm not grasping regards dunks? I'm just going to quickly uh, contextualize this, mate, and I'll then let you loose on it. Um, core, so uh, we've used it, share advisor, core, growth, and speculative. I don't think we've ever used the term strategic, and I'm not sure dunks are using, using that as your way of describing it, whether you're using it as ours. But certainly 60, 30, 10, 60% core, 30% growth, 10% speculative. It's kind of a a reasonably common kind of approach. And what you're saying is, mate, you've got about 40% core, about 30% growth, and about 30% speculative. You're saying, hey, there's so much upside here, the opportunity cost. If I'm if I if I miss the opportunity, I'm maybe missing out on a 10 bagger or a 20 bagger. Why would I not do that? So you're saying I'm I'm concerned I have a blind spot in my preference for speculative end. Can you please alleviate my concern or enlighten me to what I'm not grasping? Ram, what would you tell our friend Dunks? Yeah, I, I... The, some of these labels carry a lot of baggage, so you, you've got to be careful. So, I yeah, mean, traditionally, you'd say, well, what's the lowest risk investment is cash. Um, I'd actually say over a long time frame, that's the riskiest investment you could possibly take. I mean, just 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 go back 10 years and put all your money under the mattress and see how much purchasing power you've got today. You've lost. You've, you've gone backwards significantly. In fact, we learned this week, just in the last year alone, you've gone back 7.3%, you know, yeah. in one year. So, it's, it's an... So, Framing is important here. Cash cash is super, 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 super safe if you just want to like keep your money for ever you know, six to twelve months. It is the most ridiculously insane, risky investment you can take if you're a long <laughs> if you're a long term investor. So you know, there's that. Um, also, also, um, I don't think this is where I'm probably kidding myself, but I don't think I. I I think I'll, more traditional people might look at my portfolio and go, oh, it's very speculative. And I would probably say, no, I don't think so. They would probably think that because the sizes of the companies tend to be smaller than average mm -hmm. and the volatility of those share prices tend to be more volatile than average. So ergo, it's, it's speculative. And I would sort of say, well, yeah, they're smaller companies, but I actually think they're very well run, very good futures, good sales growth and, and all the rest of it. Um, and, in, and in fact, I would say even even if you did want to make the argument that they are genuinely more speculative, that that is more than compensated by the return potential. So it's it's what you might, if you want to be technical, you'd call it a risk-adjusted return. So, yeah, let's put all my money into Telstra and a few of these big blue-chip stocks, and I'm probably not going to lose all my money. But over any meaningful period of time, I'm probably going to get a really ordinary under under below market average return at the same at the same time. Now, is that is that is that risky? I'd say yeah. I'd say actually that's that's pretty risky. I I would far prefer to take more quote unquote risk, but have a very real genuine chance of of, of um, outperforming the market. And saying that, knowing full well that within that basket, there's going to be some that absolutely blow up and, and drop ninety percent. I'm sure. Um, but but. But when looked at as a whole, well diversified, very thorough understanding of businesses that you think have genuine um, potential, will survive tough times and have and have a, quite a bit of upside. I don't actually think I am taking that much risk, to be honest with you. Um, you look at my returns your, year to year, yeah. then you might think, "Whoa!" Like one. Sometimes <laughs> I look like the absolute, like you know, like eat your heart out, Warren Buffett. I have years that just make Warren Buffett weep, and then I have yeah. years like last year where it's just like, like I win. lose a quarter of my wealth. You know, it's like. But overall, it's actually been really great. I, I actually yeah. like that 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 first um, uh, listener sort of said they've got a very high mm -hmm. tolerance to volatility. I do too. And and I think it's actually a huge strength and advantage for me because when you when you've got that temperament you know you you and you you can roll with those punches you you tend to do very well over time and that's the cost of doing very well over time is that you're one of those people that that can roll with those punches and accept it um so yeah that i know that's how i, I think about it i'm going to ask you a follow-up question though mate because you you reference those labels with other people's views rather than your own mm. so let's let, let me let me put let me ask you to self-categorize your holdings under core growth and speculative. Mm. I'm not going to ask you to do it you know, stock by stock, but mm. as you think about that, I, yeah, well, first thing I'll say is, is that even a reasonable approach for you? Do you use those types of approaches even with your own labels for your own stocks? No. But how would you think about portfolio construction from that perspective then? Or do you know at all? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't overthink it. I, I tend to, I've said before, I think I'm a believer in diversification, but I'm very wary of over-diversification. And the maths will tell you that, gen, you, know, you can you can draw the line exactly wherever you want to draw it in different studies, draw it different ways. But I tend to think that once you've got yep. about 10 different companies in your portfolio, you're, you're very well diversified, you know, 
two of them can go to zero and they still got 80% of my wealth there. You know, it's not great, but it's sort of like you, you, you are, you are, you are reasonably well protected. In fact, I could add another 50 stocks there and it lowers my risk, but not as much as you'd think and brings a whole bunch of other complications with it. So I, I very much look at it at a portfolio level. Um, mm. And within that, so I know that's your point, you know, so within that, how do I break it down? I don't look at something, oh, this will be a core uh, or this will be speculative. It's more about the weighting depends entirely on the combination of quality and value. So all else being equal, the higher the quality, the better the value, the bigger the weighting that has. Even if that, even if that happens to be what you might traditionally call a more speculative company, if I just think actually, well, maybe some people like to define it that way, I actually think it's a very high quality business with a very bright future and it happens to be yeah. trading at a very attractive price, I'll give that a super high weighting, whether I call it core or fringe or whatever, mm. I, whatever label mm. I, I, I want to give it. And so it's basically sort of saying, make sure you have enough of a spread. Just have some humility here. You're gonna, I'm going to make a bunch of mistakes and about, a bunch of my calls are going to be wrong. But I feel as though, again, if I can get it right more often than I get it wrong and the upside is far superior than the downside potential, then, then yeah, 10 is going to protect me very well. Give it, It's actually more because there's a few sort of tiny little things in there, but 10 sort of major sort of holdings and then purely weighted on, on quality and, and value. I don't know. Does that answer I, the question? Yeah, no, it does. It does. I um, I partly follow this. I, I will say there are times as a as an investment advisor when my job is to give our um, give our members good advice they can follow to keep them on the straight and narrow. Mm-hmm. And because and this is this is the hard part. I said on the podcast before that I told I tell this him regularly. The only good advice is the advice that's taken. I can recommend something that, and Michael Burry is a great example. If you've seen The Big Short, he was the fund manager who had a really high conviction the property market was going to implode. And he was going to be a fortune for his investors, which he did. But during that process, he had to actually shut the fund for redemptions because everyone thought he was an idiot, wanted to take their money out. Mm. And so, he, but, you know, he, this is an extreme version. He said, I'm not going to give you your money back. I'm keeping it. I will make you a fortune. They still didn't thank him later. They took the money. He was still grumpy about it. And, and you know, he closed the fund. Um, but so there's a difference between technically and we say this i say this all the time mathematically good advice and and mm. advice that's followable and manageable and worth following margin loans my view on that is exactly an example of this where could it possibly be used by some people well yes if i say hey go for it knock yourself out with margin loans are some people going to use it badly and blow themselves up yes so frankly my best advice is don't do it because you don't know which which group you're going to fall into everyone thinks they're not going to be those people but someone is so don't do it um the the same is true with this now i have a a lot of companies i think most people would consider to be core right berkshire hathaway solpats brickworks uh, i own some etfs nasdaq etf it's growth i guess maybe it's core because it's an etf again how you how you want to categorize it also becomes difficult pretty quickly so our advice to members while it is wasn't is having a decent group of core companies that are more stable more reliable less likely to blow up or lose large amounts of money really understandable you know, high confidence in future return businesses that's what we say with core add in some balance sheet strength they can withstand some stuff that goes wrong and it's a good ballast a good foundation for most people's portfolios now i'm not going to tell andrew he needs to have 60 percent of his money in in core companies he's going to, well no i know what i'm doing i've got something for volatility and i can do this i will tell you from experience the vast bulk of our members and correspondents don't have that same something for volatility and they shouldn't try to because until you can develop it you have to know it's there before you try and use it right wishing it was true and say oh i'm gonna be like andrew and then three months later you're down 25 percent. you sell everything because you just oh bugger, i'm not like andrew at all you know sometimes Staying alive in investing is, is, is kind of rule number one, right? Warren Buffett's don't lose money is a, yeah. has been horribly misquoted or misapplied. But the idea of not going back to square one is the only... If you get to 40, the capital base you've built, hopefully over that 20-year period, can't be replaced easily, if at all, because you're giving up years of compounding to resave that money if you blow it up. So mm. uh, I think most people should absolutely have a, a core of high quality, you know, reliable businesses, share price will still be volatile, but reliable businesses who they can have a high degree of confidence will be around and profitable and hopefully growing, if only moderately, over 5, 10, 15 years. I think that makes sense for most people when they do their investing. So the whole idea of ETFs is, is exactly that idea, right? Mm. You can't beat the market with a market ETF by definition. Why is it a great investment? Because some, for most people, that's enough, you know? Mm. So mm. Um, if you're a stock picker, 
knock yourself out. If you want, to, if you are like Ram, you want to be like Ram. I'll, I'll put myself in that same bucket. I have a very good stomach for volatility, although I don't have the same number of smaller companies that I have. You know, the Solpats and the Brickworks and the Berkshires. So, you know, but but volatility wise, I'm very happy with the. You know, I'm not happy. I'm very comfortable to, to cop the volatility. Of some of the companies I own, Shopify, I own Amazon. They are terrible 2022s, and I, I do I care? Yeah. Am I worried? No. So, you know, um, I would say yes. I think, I think most people should have a larger core um, holding than not, because it makes more sense for them and it, it probably puts them at less risk. Um, over time, I think the opportunity to build out the growth bit is important. I would speculative is one I'm going to go with you, Ram. I don't like the label speculative. We mm. had we have used that in our service to describe that what we call the portfolio pyramid. It was done by the advisor who ran share advisor before me. Um, I don't think you need any speculative stocks. Speculative in, in, in the way I would describe it. And it comes down to, as Ram said, what how you describe them, right? Yeah. I, have, I don't have a single speculative stock in my portfolio. Yeah, I don't think I do. It doesn't mean I won't lose money mm. on some. Mm. Um, but but moonshots, lottery tickets, no. That's not investing, no. right? No. Speculative is not, what if this... It, people would say, I think. Speculative is, oh, what if this gold miner finally strikes gold? What if this biotech manages to cure cancer? What if this great new technology turns out to be worth something? Yeah, That's speculative. And that's just rubbish. Like, you, no one should... Oh, oh, let me out there no one should invest in that in my mind right mm. what are you doing seriously pull your heads in yeah um invest that's 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 a lot of money if you want to, if you want to do that instead of buying a lot of tickets sure but don't do that instead of buying great quality businesses or businesses with real yeah. actual business you know, sales preferably profits but certainly going in that direction so i would i would absolutely say speculative zero absolutely zero now if mm-hmm. your thought dunks is you know what you call speculative i, I would say 30 percent way too much but if you're saying, well, actually, people think that one of Andrew's favorite companies is speculative, well, that's okay. Don't, don't use other people's definitions for this. Use your own. Mm. Uh, but I don't think you should be speculating. I think you should be investing in, in good quality businesses and growth businesses and preferably both uh, when they're available at attractive prices. But I do think for most people, a, a core foundation for the portfolio just is, is sensible, makes sense, because it keeps you alive. It cushions the blow. It manages your emotions. It makes sure you don't have to go back to square one. And that, I think, is worth more. Like everything, when things are going well, you know, we, we, we had a lot of people 18 months ago ask about margin loans. No one does that in the last year because <laughs> all those things, when they said the market couldn't possibly fall that far, interest couldn't possibly go up that much, actually turns out they can and they did. Mm. And I'm not saying that to be a smug so-and-so. I'm just saying, you know, when, when things are going great, you can't imagine how bad things could possibly be. Mm. And, you know, and so that's, that's why we said at the time, for the love of God, please be careful. Mm. Please be careful. Um, so it kind of goes, kind of goes down. I would also say too that again, it comes back to what we were talking earlier. Like some of these labels are really unhelpful. The yeah. I could have a year ago thought, and actually, I'm not going to do this stock picking. I'm just going to go a broad based ETF. Yeah, um, that's right. So I'm going to put some money. I like the I like the Nasdaq. Mm-hmm. It's a big major global yeah. index. Apple, you know, biggest companies <laughs> in the world, right? And I've just lost 30%. And you've taken one of the, you know, maybe you could say, well, there's a better index you could have picked. But I don't think anyone's going to point to you and say, oh, what a hyper-speculative thing. It's like, yeah, you can, even even with the, the quote-unquote sort of solid core kind of assets, you can still mm. suffer some really big, big swings in in, yeah. in all of that. And, and um you know, then again, I, I know a lot of favorite examples in here, but it's sort of like go back five years, buy ANZ, buy AMP, buy Telstra, buy what, you know, mm-hmm. all of these quote unquote blue chip companies. And they've just been awful. And probably really, in, with benefit of hindsight, you, you could call it speculative. Speculative in the sense that you actually thought these things could, <laughs> could grow or do something <laughs> and they haven't, you know. Um, so, yeah. You know, you define it how you want it to fight. You never want to make a, you never want to put your money on something which is reliant on hope. You want to have, you might be wrong. You'll in fact often be wrong, but you want a really, I guess, objectively based thesis around that. Mm. And, and, and if you've got a reasonable amount of conviction on, on that, then I, I don't know if I would even call that speculative. But, you know, there's an element of speculation in all things, mm. but you're, you're basing it on hopefully some well reasoned thinking. And if some, traditional fund manager who thinks it's speculative because it fails to meet a certain market cap threshold or has a beta value that's, you know, 3.7 instead of, you know, 1.2 and all this nonsense. They're just useful, useless, useless definitions, I think. Yep. So, yeah, build, build a portfolio that helps you sleep at night, build a portfolio that's suitably diversified, build a portfolio that 
should give you, if you're right, a decent chance of beating the market. I think that's, you know, uh, that that's the rationale behind the portfolio pyramid is to give people some way to structure that. I will say, by the way, well, we say 6% core, we don't say 6% any core, including ANZ or Telstra, right? We're saying mm, companies mm, that, that meet that mm. core criteria that are actually worth investing in. That we, you know, every one of our investments we recommend, we think is is likely to beat the market. Now we're wrong a lot, by the way. So you know, let's keep those two things together. I'm not saying just we recommend it's going to beat the market, and there's no certainties in life. Otherwise, Andrew said we'd all be in cash. Yeah. Um, so when when we say six percent core, we're not saying any stock that's meets you know blue chip as a definition. Yeah. In fact, I hate as much as you do, Andrew, as, as you well know. So uh, yeah, but but the idea of just just you know some ballast in the portfolio. I think Solpat's going to be a market leader. I think it's going to grow. Is it going to grow as fast as some others? Probably not. Uh, am I very 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 happy with it? Do I sleep well? Absolutely. That's core for me, right? Uh, so I don't own yeah. I don't know now, but I don't know Westpac. Um, so so think about some of those um, some of those approaches. I, I think. Yeah, suitably diversified, quality businesses, attractive prices, rinse and repeat, dollar cost average. Uh, my starting and, and, you know, my, my starting point is always there's the first question I ask: Will this business be around in ten years time? Yeah, there you go. Because if I don't have a high conviction on that, then what? What, what is the? I mean, I'm just picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. Uh, other yes. than that, you know, some people might be able to do well by timing in and out between here and in, in, in Doomsday, but it's like that is the first question. So I, am I, I mean, I can't be guaranteed of anything because there's, you know, the world is full of surprises. But, you know, if, if I don't have a pretty decent degree of conviction, even if it happens to be a $20 million market cap early stage company, that is it around in 10 years is, is the first question. It's like, okay, tick. Now, once you've gotten past that hurdle, it does a lot of heavy lifting, that, that tick, right? So it's an important one. And then it's a question of, well, is the business earning more in that point in time than it is today? That's, that's the second tick. And then, you know, there's, there's, there's sub-ticks within all of these categories, but brought very broad level. <laughs> and then the final one is, is, it, is it trading at a sensible price? Not is it trading at the bottom tick or is it the best price I'll ever get? Is it, is yeah, it a exactly. sensible price based on those, those expectations? And there's a really high level but really useful three-point check, checklist. Is it around? Will, is it growing even, even modestly? You know, is it going to be a bigger mm-hmm. company in 10 years? Is it around in 10 years? Is it going to be bigger in 10 years? And is the price accurately reflecting those expectations? That'll, that'll go a long way. If you, can, if you can objectively, rationally, reasonably um, convince yourselves of those three points, mm-hmm. I would say that there's very little speculation in that at all, regardless of what other you know, pigeonholes you want to pop that business into. Love it. I think we are done, mate. A very, oh, I will say, a tour de force return for 2023, <laughs> at, least, at least from you. I'll try to do my best to keep up. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, if, you, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do recommend it to your friends and do please subscribe if you're using Apple or any of your usual podcast machines. If you are on the Apple podcast machine, though, please give us a review and some stars. If you want to give us five stars, we'd greatly appreciate it. Do us a favor. If you've got this far through the podcast, particularly if you listen to both episodes this week, I hope we're doing something right. So please do that for us. Um, it just helps people find the podcast. helps us float to the top of any of those lists which is yes partly about our ego uh, but mostly so other people can find the podcast because that's just the way these things work these days um, the algorithms are the algorithms as we all well and truly know so if you would do that for us that would be very very much appreciated uh, meanwhile if you want to get in touch info at fool.com.au follow Andrew on Twitter exclusively Elon's best mate Andrew Page at sage underscore Simeon at strawman invest you can get me on Insta or Twitter at TMF Scott P. The Motley Fool account on those two platforms is at The Motley Fool AU. Follow me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Scott Phillips Money. And we'll see you next week. Until Friday, Fool on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.